The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. titles that the prophet Isaiah gives to us. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace have been our focus in this Advent season. Now uh, on the fourth week, we come now to the fourth title, the Prince of Peace. Uh, If you haven't already, join me in Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, we'll be reading again the first seven verses. The titles come there in verse 6. We want to hear, uh, as we have each week, not only uh, what the title is, but what it means and how it applies to us as people who receive this Christ as our Messiah. So, let's pray together and we'll hear God's Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come now with Bibles open, ready to hear what it is that You would speak to us. We thank You that that You spoke by way of the prophet Isaiah to tell of Your Son, the Lord Jesus, the promised Messiah, who was be to us wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And Lord, we do indeed live in a world that is much in need of the peace that we will be considering this morning. So we pray that by Your Holy Spirit that You would illuminate our minds, that we might not only hear and read, but that we might listen and read with discernment and understanding and faith that is granted by Your Spirit. So Lord, come now and bless the reading and hearing and proclamation of Your Word. May we all sit under its authority with joy and ready hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of God, Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff, for his shoulder, the rod, for his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open here. We're going to be in Isaiah in a few places, and we'll also be turning to the book of Psalms uh, this morning, so do keep your Bible open. Uh, Well, uh, perhaps you know this story. Uh, Christmas Eve 1914, during the years of World War I, Christmas Eve 1914, Candles were lit across the various sections of the trenches of the German and British forces facing one another in no man's land, and carols began to sing. 
And when December 25th dawned, Christmas Day, cold and frost is on the ground and shelling and gunfire ceased. And at least in a number of places along the Western Front, the soldiers from both German and British forces enjoyed a, a brief ceasefire. German troops came up out of their trenches saying Merry Christmas in English as the British soldiers climbed out as well to meet them. I understood they often uh, they even played a soccer game. Uh, in safety, they were able to retrieve those who had perished in no man's land, swapped gifts with each other and sung carols. And for a few moments in the midst of the Great War, there was a time of peace. A war ceased, at least it stalled for just a moment. Now, when Isaiah tells us that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we might have something like that in our minds. When we think about peace, uh, we think about the, the ceasing of conflict, the cessation of hostilities, or the end of a war. And it's not wrong for us to think in those terms, but that's not all that Isaiah means here when we speak of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, because Isaiah himself is talking about uh, not only a moment of peace, but a reign of peace that is going to come with this promised Messiah. 700 years on into the future will be the birth of Christ, but Isaiah is speaking of Him here now as if He's just yet to come. To the people who are in darkness is this promise of peace yet to come. Actually, in chapter 2, Isaiah says that He shall judge the nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now this language is often co-opted by politicians to want to speak about various aspects of geopolitical realities. Uh, but this is not talking only about geopolitical peace. So we want to know what is this peace. Uh, Isaiah is here speaking of a moment uh, when a baby who is going to be born will make war an impossibility will make hostilities between nations no longer a reality. And I want to say very clearly that you and I do not live in the fullness of this day. And we know that. We do not live in the fullness of this reality, and Isaiah's people did not live in the fullness of this reality as he spoke the word prophetically, even though the birth of Christ was at 700 years yet to come, and we're 2,700 years since Isaiah's prophecy, and we still don't live in the fullness of this day, but we do live in the sense of the day in one sense. We're not there yet completely, but there is an already realized aspect of this peace that Isaiah is speaking of here. It's more than just the cessation of hostility between nations and people. One day, one day there will be a final outworking of all manner of divine peace when not only will nations cease their hostility, but individuals among themselves and individuals before God. There is going to come a day when there will be no more war, no more hostilities, no more hate, and only peace will reign. One day when the kingdom of Jesus is consummated in its fullness. But again, friends, we don't live in that day yet. It is still yet to come. So in order to appreciate what Isaiah is saying, because it was still yet future when Isaiah spoke it, and in another sense, it's still yet future for us, we want to understand what does this mean? What do we mean by Jesus as Prince? What do we mean by Jesus as Prince of Peace? What kind of peace does he bring? So we'll think about it in those two senses. Briefly, the notion of Jesus as prince and then 
in some detail this peace that he brings. So first of all, the fact that Jesus is called here Prince. Now, it might seem strange because amidst these various titles, we've been identifying them to be royalty and we've ascribed kingship language to Jesus. And here now we're saying that Jesus is a prince. Now, this title is more than just honorific. It's more than just a way to praise the Messiah. It's more than just some kind of praise. You know how someone might say, oh, he's really a prince of a man. It's not just a kind of a pat on the shoulder designation. This is a formal title that is given to the Messiah to communicate executive authority over the kingdom of God. It's intended to communicate royal, regal authority. To him belongs the government, Isaiah says. And when Isaiah speaks of the government, he speaks of the rule of the kingdom of God. Because at this time, there were many different nations with many different governments. But Isaiah is speaking of a government not only nationally, but supernaturally of the kingdom of God itself. So, Isaiah says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. That's verse 7. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Isaiah uses this language throughout his prophecy. In fact, if you were to look in chapter 22, God says... I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Isaiah depicts the Messiah as bearing upon his shoulders, carrying upon his own self the full weight of the execution of God's divine government. This is why, by the way, uh, the nation of Israel was so misunderstanding of Jesus because they expected their Messiah to be a government leader. They expected him to occupy an office that they would identify as a a, a civic role, a civic leader. Yes, a religious leader, but that he would sit in the seats of civic government. And when Jesus didn't replace Caesar, and when Jesus didn't replace Herod, and when Jesus didn't replace Pontius Pilate, they said, what kind of ruler is he? if he will not take to himself the seat of government. But when Isaiah says that he is a prince, it means that he is the executive governor of the kingdom of God. As we sing together, Hark the herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. Unmistakingly, the title of prince communicates a regal authority, a royal designation. Jesus is born as king. And he is king at the very moment of his birth. That's what Isaiah means to call him prince. But really the key designation here is that he is a royal prince of peace. So we want to think deeply about this reality of peace here. Jesus is prince of peace. What does Isaiah mean? What does he mean by this designation, prince of peace? Because he is speaking to a people where if you look back in Isaiah 9 verse 1, he speaks of gloom and anguish. In verse 2, he speaks of walking in darkness, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. Isaiah is speaking to a people who do not live in peace whatsoever. And he says there is someone who is coming, who when he comes will bear upon his shoulders the weight of God's divine government and usher forth the reality of peace. So what is that peace that comes with God's 
divine government by way of the Messiah. There's a few mistakes that we want to avoid thinking about peace here. Because if you were just going to poll a bunch of people and say, what do you think peace is? What do you think peace represents? You might get a smattering of answers. Some people might say, well, peace is just the absence of conflict or hostility. And, but that's missing something because that just says what peace isn't. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict and hostility. That's a positive reality, of course, but not just conflict avoided, but peace must also bring something. Something must be truly ushered in when peace comes for it to be a reality for us. People might think that it's just the absence of something, but it's more than just what we don't have. It's something more. What is it? We want to see. Some people also might be tempted to think of peace as something that is purely subjective. And by that I mean peace for them just means a sense of tranquility and calm. Peacefulness in my heart is what somebody might say peace represents to me. My own sense of subjective peacefulness. And while there certainly is a component of that with Jesus' reign, it's not just that either. The primary point of emphasis that Isaiah speaks of here to call Jesus the Prince of Peace is speaking of an objective reality of peace, not a subjective one. And what I mean by that is that the peace that Isaiah is speaking of is a peace that is true and real regardless of what a person might think of it. If Jesus' peace was subjectively determined, then it would only be peaceful insofar as you feel that it's peaceful. But what Isaiah is saying is that there is going to come a king who's going to rule over the kingdom of God to usher in peace, and it will be a reality. Whether or not you receive it, whether or not you believe it, it's a reality. Jesus' peace is an objective reality, and so Isaiah is claiming to tell us what is true about this Messiah so that you and I might order ourselves accordingly to receive this Messiah appropriately. The point of emphasis here in Jesus' peacefulness is not the serene tranquility that we associate with singing candlelit silent night on Christmas Eve, though that's wonderful. The peace that Isaiah speaks of here is the result of a vanquished enemy and a victory on behalf of the Messiah. The peace that Isaiah speaks of from the Messiah is a peace that flows out of the Messiah's victory of battle, victory of warfare. So, don't just associate serene tranquility with the word peace. Isaiah is saying, here is the victory and the conquest and the reign of this mighty Messiah. So, if you look back again at verse 4 for a moment, you'll get a sense of some of this. You'll notice how the prophet is describing the rule of the Messiah as in verse 4, breaking the staff of the oppressor from the shoulders of his people. Breaking the staff of the oppressor. That is to say that there are people who are over against the people of God who are harsh to them and rain down on them oppression. And when the Messiah comes, he will break the staff of the oppressor. And he says it will happen there in verse 4, as on the day of Midian. 
And that might be easy to just kind of pass by that note and see it as a small detail, but it's easy to do so. But it's intended to remind us of the scene from Judges 6, 7, and 8 when Gideon is raised up to defend the people of God against the Midianites who were the oppressors of the people of God. And Gideon is raised up with an army to defeat the enemy to deliver the people of God into peace away from their oppressors. The peace that Isaiah is speaking of here is a peace that comes from a war won from a victory achieved, from an enemy vanquished. There is someone who's going to be defeated because the Messiah is bringing His peace. His peace comes with victory and triumph. This is also why the prospect of a Jewish Messiah was so threatening to the first century. Even though the Jewish people misappropriated their identity of who Jesus was, there were many other civic leaders who were not at all confused about this reality. Which is why Herod was so threatened by the idea of a king of the Jews. Do you remember in Matthew's Gospel when the Magi come from Babylon to inquire of the one born king of the Jews, Herod hears that this has happened. They call for the Magi to come say, when you find him, come back and tell me where he is so I can meet him for myself. And when they didn't come back and tell him, Herod dispatched his soldiers to execute every male in Israel two years and younger. Why? Because if a Messiah is going to be born to reign king of the Jews, then that will mean the Messiah intends to reign over those people to be a rival governor of the people. And so King Herod puts down the possibility of that ever being attained by any Jewish boy, which is why Jesus is fled to Egypt by his parents. So, to challenge his rule, that's why Herod was threatened. At the other end of the gospel narrative, think about the fact that Jesus is made to stand before Pilate. Do you remember Pilate asked Jesus the question, are you the king of the Jews? And the reason why Pilate asks this question is not just because the Jewish leaders have accused Jesus of saying this. They believed it wasn't true. Pilate is not concerned with the religious implications of Jesus being the king of the Jews. What Pilate is motivated to ask the question of Jesus for, he's asking, is this man a threat to Caesar? Is this man a threat to the reign of the emperor who is said to be God himself? If the Jews raise up a king for themselves, they believe that king is going to reign over all kings, which means they would suggest that Caesar should bow to him, and Pilate is Caesar's handman, and so we can't have this. You see, there is this geopolitical entity of the Messiah that they were threatened by. Do you remember Jesus' answer to the question, are you the king of the Jews? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I might be delivered from the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. He is a king, of course, but His kingdom is not geopolitical. And it does not progress by the instruments of politics. Jesus' kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It advances not by way of the sword. It advances by way of the gospel. And the church, 2,000 years since Jesus' earthly ministry, often gets itself in trouble because we still don't understand this reality. The victory that the church is looking for is not fundamentally going to be won in the halls of the legislature. Though those things matter, the existence and victory of the church is not tied to any human government. Because the church will manifest its victory amidst all earthly human governments. 
So what is the great victory of the spiritual kingdom that's going to come? What is the peace that's going to be ushered in? What is the great victory? The great victory is Jesus Himself. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was He. Jesus' victory is in His bleeding and dying. Jesus' victory is in His coming under the power of the grave for three days. Jesus' victory is His triumphant resurrection over death and hell. Jesus' victory is His ascension. Jesus' victory is His present reign over all things as King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, Jesus' full victory will be manifested as He returns to consummate the kingdom that He has inaugurated. And friends, you and I live between the realities of His first coming and second coming. His kingdom has been inaugurated. It's begun. It's a spiritual kingdom that advances in the hearts of those who receive Him by faith. But He is not building a geopolitical institution. He is building a church that transcends all nations, that gathers from all nations into one people, a true church in allegiance to the Lamb, in allegiance to the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is what Jesus is doing. And as He is doing that in the earth, the church gathers and meets in what looks like weakness, in what looks like foolishness. And Jesus' kingdom advances through these ordinary means of grace as we preach the Word and minister the sacraments and gather together. The kingdom of God advances. And it advances powerfully against the darkness. And the kingdoms of darkness and of hell cannot withstand the advance of the church of Jesus Christ because our King reigns over all things. This is not some wimpy version of the Christian faith. This is a reigning Messiah over all things who delivers His people from all of their enemies. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah says, who reigns over His spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, and dispenses His peace according to His victory. That is what's true about Jesus. So what should we say about it as we receive it? In thinking about this reality, I want us to identify a word to three types of people today. Now, and there might be cross-sections. You might find yourself identifying with all three or maybe just one or two or whichever. But I think Jesus, the Prince of Peace, speaks a clear word to particular folks on the Lord's Day that I think we want to consider. And the first of all is a word to the discouraged. A word to the discouraged. If you find yourself perhaps in a season of discouragement, or in seasons of considering the world's estate, or perhaps the estate of the church, and you find yourself discouraged, I want you to be strengthened by something, and I want to encourage you to, to turn to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm 2 as we consider a word to the discouraged in light of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Psalm 2 speaks to this. And uh, those of us who are especially given perhaps to melancholy or we've got a bit of Eeyore about us where we're always kind of ho-hum and down on ourselves or down on the affairs of the world, it is easy for us to realize that many people look with scorn upon the reality of the Gospel. And we may even, we have this kind of, this angst about us that we say, how come everybody around seems to enjoy celebrating Christmas but doesn't give a rip about Jesus. 
Why, why is that? And you see some discord and you're frustrated perhaps and you realize that there are many people who look with sneering contempt upon the claims of the Christian faith. What do you mean a virgin gives birth to a child? That doesn't happen. And we say quietly to ourselves, but I believe that. I believe that because the Bible says that and people are oftentimes looking with contempt upon this. Oftentimes the Christian faith is disregarded and mocked. That's not a new thing. Look at what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2 at verse 1 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast their cords away from us. Psalm 2 is imagining the, the rulers and governors of the earth gathering together to say, what of this foolish Jewish Messiah? Let's, let's burst forth the cords that hold them together. Let's take counsel together and dismiss these claims. This is a word to the discouraged when we realize that this is still true. That people still oftentimes look to the Christian faith and disregard and look with sneering contempt. They set counsel against us. But look at what verse 4 says. Verse 4 tells us of the reality of a Prince of Peace who reigns on heaven's throne and in light of the contempt of the council of the earth's rulers, verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs. What is he laughing at? He is laughing at the rulers of the earth who hold themselves in such high regard that they consider their unbelief wisdom. They consider their rejection of the Messiah the greater part of virtue. They consider dismissing the claims of Jesus Christ to be the true principled humanity. And in light of their supposed wisdom, in light of their supposed counsel, do you know what the Messiah does from heaven? He laughs at them. Because they who suppose themselves to be wise, the Lord Jesus knows that they are actually fools. They who dismiss His Lordship and reign, they are themselves fools. So I want to say to you, if you are discouraged, if you think back over 2022 and you see perhaps some moral decay or you think the church is weakened in the nation or values that you cherish and you hold dear, if you see that they are undermined or rejected or denied, it's easy to be discouraged. Or if you look around the world and see persecution and suffering, it's easy to be discouraged. But friends, you should take heart in the fact that Jesus Christ reigns from heaven as the Prince of Peace. And there is no disruption in the world in past, present, or yet future that Jesus Christ does not laugh at because He knows that one day He will make it all right. If your heart is discouraged, it could be because you have set your hopes too deeply on the things of this world rather than on Him who reigns above. Do not be discouraged. Isaiah says, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. This is a word to the discouraged. We should also say a word to the weary. A word to the weary. As you go back into Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, Again, the prophet is describing the remarkable transformation that takes place in the wake of the birth of Jesus Christ. A situation that moves from oppression to liberation, from sorrow to joy. 
He talks about the staff for the shoulders of the oppressed people, the rod of the oppressor being broken back in Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to again see that message if you're weary. Verse 4, Isaiah 9 verse 4. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, he has broken. The key point that Isaiah is making here, especially to those of you who are weary, is that the burden that has so long been placed upon our shoulders is lifted because somebody else is going to bear it for us. We are weary under our burdens. We are weary under our oppressors. And the king is going to come and bear the burden for us. He shoulders the burden of rule for us. The burden on our shoulders is removed because he bears it as the prince of beasts. And so he says to us in the words of Matthew 11, 29 and 30, do you remember it? Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Loved one, if you are weary this morning, could it be because you are unnecessarily carrying a burden that Jesus is inviting for you to give to Him? Your shoulders aren't broad enough. You're not strong enough. Jesus is. Isn't that good news? But we must acknowledge that we ourselves in our weariness cannot shoulder our own burden successfully because it will crush us. And Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of His burden you have broken because to you a child is given to reign and carry your burden for you. A word to the weary. And finally, a word to the discouraged, a word to the weary, and a word to the wandering. A word to the wandering. Perhaps, friend, you feel that peace eludes you and you can't find it. Or perhaps you used to have it and it's gone from you now. Peace eludes you because you're looking in the wrong place. We cannot, as Christian believers, insist that the purpose of the Gospel is simply to give us inner peace. That's a common phrase that you'll hear in the world today in a highly uh, uh, therapeutic age. People are always talking about inner peace. And you cannot have inner peace until you secure the reality of outer peace, the Bible says. In fact, the reason why inner peace so eludes humanity is because of their blatant rejection of Jesus Christ. Or perhaps someone who, while making a profession of faith in Jesus, remains insistent that they will have Jesus, but on my own terms, rather than His. I like what Jesus affords to me, but when then when He asks me to do something, I don't prefer that. I like the gifts that He'll give to me, but when He asks me to obey Him, not so much. But remember, dear friends, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and the Sovereign Ruler who comes on His own terms. Peace is in His hands to give and He will give it to all who come to Him, but on His own terms. So see clearly that there are only two ways to live. There are only two ways to live. Either you will shoulder your burden yourself. Either you will bear the dreadful burden of sin and guilt in the sight of God, or you will come under the reign of the Prince of Peace and allow Him to shoulder the burden of your sin and guilt for you. You see, people are convinced that true freedom 
is life on my own terms. That's what I really want. Do it my own way, have it my own rights, do whatever I want. People are convinced that that's real freedom. But the scriptures make very clearly, in fact, that when you live on your own terms, you merely precipitate your own slavery to sin. True freedom is not radical independence, no matter what the pop culture tells us. True freedom is submission to the yoke of the one who says, my yoke is easy. True freedom is coming under the leadership, the sovereign kingship of Jesus, who says, my burden is light. And those who surrender the reins of their lives to Him know the relief that they cannot find anywhere else. Let me say it to you very clearly. Not a single one of us here today is sufficiently qualified to be the Lord of our own lives. You're bad at it. It doesn't result in peace for you to try to be the Lord of your own lives. The good news is, is that you don't have to be. Because we have a Savior who is given to us to be the Prince of Peace, to provide rest for all of our wandering and secure our deepest need, which is peace as God, to give us rest in our weariness and to give us encouragement in the midst of our discouragement because it all comes by way of Jesus Christ who comes to bring peace by the blood of His cross. That seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? Peace by the blood of His cross but it is in the victory of Jesus Christ by His death and resurrection that He secures our own deepest need, which is peace with Almighty God. And we cannot have Him on our own terms. And His is a victory which is now complete, and we have it on His terms. So remember, friends, we live between the already and not yet. The peace which Jesus promises is available to every single one of us now individually and it manifests itself outwardly as the people of God gather and the church advances. But the fullness of that peace is still yet to come when there will no longer need to be any hostilities between nations, between families, between individuals because Christ will make all things new under the reign of His royal kingship as Prince of Peace. Dear friends, as we live between those realities, it remains to us to live by faith. To live by faith, trusting in this Messiah, this Prince of Peace. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank You for Your Word and its truth, and we thank You for the promises that You've given to us that You have fulfilled. For You promised 2,700 years ago that You would send this Messiah, and He has indeed come. But Lord, we know that so many people don't look upon Him and conclude appropriately that He is indeed the one true King. So Lord, help us by faith to live in His spiritual kingdom, believing with all our hearts that His is a peace which we simply cannot miss and His is a peace which we simply need. So Lord, bless us with that peace. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.